0: Over the last two weeks, we have been given a glimpse of who we are in Christ and what is required for us in Christ. Peter explained that the believers have everything they need for life and godliness through a true knowledge of Christ. and Our saving understanding of the gospel guarantees that we can live for God. And honor Him with our behavior. Peter encouraged us also that we have been granted many precious and magnificent promises in Christ. These promises make it possible for us to participate in the communicable attributes of God. So what are the communicable attributes of God? They are the attributes or traits of God that are able to be displayed in humans, the ones that we were made in the image of God and we now can in Christ and because of regeneration display these communicable attributes by the power of the Spirit that is now working in us who believe in Christ. Then last week we saw our, our responsibility in light of these promises and we began to look at what deny, divine enablement calls us to do. We saw in the passage that Shane read in verses 5 and 6 and 7 there that believers must apply all diligence to supply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These are traits we must all strive continuously to demonstrate by the grace of God that's working in us. We must work out our salvation in fear and trembling, displaying these attributes. These are the fruit of the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit, so we display these attributes. We show these characteristics off to the world. The world can't do it because they are totally depraved and lost. But those who have been born again, we have a new heart, and we have, by the grace of God, the ability... To show off the glory of Christ who is at work in us daily. This is what we saw last week. So how well did you do this past week? How well did you do? Did people see you personally submit to the Lord and honor Him? Did people see you pursuing Knowing God? Did you pursue knowing God more this week? I went back and forth in my head whether I was going to do this, but I'm going to do it. Here we go. You ready? I'm going to do a survey. How many of you read your Bible? Be honest. God's watching. Read your Bible more than five or five or more times this week on different days. Raise your hand. Hi. Let's see it. Okay, I know that's very... Those that didn't, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, you just nailed me. That's not the point. It's not the point. The point is, is that these things should change us. And we should evaluate our hearts. Did we endure under the burdens of the world and its temptations? Did we look like our Heavenly Father this week? We won't ask the question... Did you lose your temper this week? Did we display brotherly kindness this week to other believers? Did you do an act of love to somebody that's a believer in Christ? How about did you do it daily? Did we love others? Okay, so now everybody in the room is convicted, right? If not, you're not breathing or you're not listening. Often we struggle to answer questions like this because we very rarely evaluate ourselves. We don't do personal evaluations of ourselves on a daily basis. We might think on Sunday, and I know I have a way of whacking you with the word, right? Not intentionally, but I love you, and it does me too, just so you know. I get a whole week of getting whacked by this thing. But we don't evaluate ourselves that much on a daily basis. We might think on a sin on a Sunday that we did during the week, but we aren't evaluating ourselves much during the week. Jonathan Edwards had a practice we all should consider applying to our lives. When he was around 18, 19, he began writing his resolutions that he resolved to do every day or Throughout his life. A few of the resolutions. I want to read them to you. I want you to look at them. These are things we ought to consider doing too. Here's one. Maybe. Resolve. To inquire every night. As I'm going to bed. Wherein I have been negligent. What sin I have committed. Wherein I have denied myself. And also at the end of every week. Month and year. Every day, he asked the question, did I sin today? Every day. His entire life from about 18 on. That's a resolve. Here's another one. Did it flip? Yeah. Resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. Wow. about this one. Resolve to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better. Wow. This isn't the kind of thinking that we see in our lives. Do we? Often? Do we think this way, beloved? Often? We don't evaluate ourselves that much. We live in a society that is consumed with evaluating everybody else, though. We're real good evaluators. We just don't always evaluate who? Ourselves. How well do we do examining our hearts? Now, this doesn't mean that we walk around in guilt and feeling sorry for ourselves. You know, I've heard this before. Well, I'm very introspective, and I'm, I'm constantly evaluating myself. Well, that okay, good. But if that evaluation leads you to walk around in guilt, then you've missed the whole point. Because listen, we do evaluate ourselves, and if we've sinned, guilt is a what? A God-given thing from the conscience that he gives us. It's what we do with that sin, whether we repent, whether we confess our sins, whether we turn to Christ. I'm not saying stay in guilt. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that, and just as Jonathan Edwards says here, we should evaluate ourselves, see our sin, and then what? Repent. Confess it to Christ and get right with him. We seek forgiveness and restored joy in our relationship as we go through these things. We ask for Him to help us slay the sin in our lives over and over and over, don't we? Sometimes I'm real persistent in my prayer. You know what it is? God, I want to kill that sin. Lord, please help me kill that sin. We need to be persistent. We then resolve by the grace of God... To put our moral excellence, or put on moral excellence, self-control, brotherly kindness, and love. So you finish the day and you say, well, I didn't love anybody this week, or this day, but myself. What should it do to you? It should convict you. (laughs) And then you should do what? Confess that as sin. I was pretty selfish today, Lord. Please, Father, change my heart. Help me to think of somebody else. Help me to love somebody else tomorrow. Change me, God. I want to be different. Because you granted to us everything for life and godliness through a true knowledge of Him. We have it. So help me do it. I believe you, Lord. We focus our attention on the Savior. and We realize that He died for us. And we renew our commitment to Him all the time, don't we? Isn't that us believers? We're constantly going back to Him, aren't we? All the time. You know, this is the life of the believer, isn't it? This is the life of the believer. We're justified, declared right, and then it is a rocky road, isn't it? You can see there's somewhat of a projection. It is going up. To a degree. The direction is what? Upwards, right? But our life is rocky. And it's a constant seeking Him and falling down and evaluating our hearts and recognizing we need Him in this area too. And then we get to the end of our life and we think, well, by that time we should be way up there. No, there's still a long gap (laughs) for us to go before we get to glory and we look like Christ. We're declared right with Christ. Yes, at justification. But sanctification is progressive, and it is. Long, hard, painful work. It is. It's all the time. But it it involves evaluating our hearts. It involves checking ourselves. Peter explained that the believers who... Are practicing the traits in verses 5 to 7 are fruitful and useful in verse 8. These traits are the direction of our life. And this doesn't mean that we're perfect. However, it is inevitable that these attributes will be displayed in a genuine believer's life. We will display moral excellence, self-control, godliness... Brotherly kindness and love. We will say no to the flesh. We will seek to know God more on a regular basis. We will pray and commune with God on an ongoing basis. We will seek to serve brothers and sisters daily, thinking of ways we can either pray for them or we're going to see them or we're helping them in any way we can. We're looking for opportunities to serve one another. Why? Because the Spirit's alive and working in us. You know, y'all have heard the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people in the church. What's that? What's that? That is counter-scriptural. It goes against the Bible. It doesn't work that way. Not in reality. Why? Because the Bible says that everybody produce, does this everybody. We encourage, we sacrifice for, and we serve others because we know God loves us because he gave his son to die for us. And so we want to serve. We want to love. We want to care for others. The professing believers who don't love or display self-control or perseverance or exhibit moral excellence are spiritually blind, is what Peter says in verse 9. They're spiritually blind. As we'll see eventually in 2 Peter 2, that's the false teachers. The forgiveness that professing believers claim to have in Christ is not real for them if they aren't displaying these characteristics. Do you understand, folks? If we have been forgiven, then we will act like forgiven people. That makes sense, doesn't it? There's no more burden on our back. And so we now want to what? Serve the king. Because we've been forgiven. What's Jesus say? Those who have been loved much will love much. Right? Truly knowing we are forgiven in Christ will motivate the believer to a different life. A pursuit of holiness. A love that displays itself to others. So can a saved person lose his or her salvation? Our passage today can be misinterpreted that way. You're like, "Uh uh-oh. Is he saying that? No. We can't lose our salvation. If we are genuinely saved, we cannot. No genuine believer can lose their salvation. Why? First Peter, Peter states why in 1 Peter 1, 5. Because ultimately, who, the Christian, are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why can't we lose our salvation? Answer real simple. You ready? Because God's powerful. God won't. He won't lose his own. He keeps us. All the way to the end. We can't lose our salvation. Why can't we? Why can't genuine believers lose our salvation? Why can't we? Answer because God will save what He has chosen. God will save what He has chosen. Preservation is a guarantee. If where He is, He will finish what He started. It's a guarantee. But also because the believer will persevere in the faith to the end. Because we will persevere in the faith till the end. We will have perseverance. If we are his child, we will persevere to the end. That's a fact. This passage talks about it. Schreiner gives an excellent quote here. We are saved by the persevering. Or preserving, rather, I'll, i got to make sure I don't mess these up. We'll say it again, you ready? We are saved by the preserving power of God. That is at work in the preserving faith of the child of God. That is, he preserves us, or he preserves us and we persevere. Do you understand? Very important. Both of those are true. MacArthur states it this way. While all believers are sovereignly preserved in their salvation by the almighty power of God, his sovereignty in no way eliminates their responsibility to persevere in faith through their lives. Just as God's sovereignty in conversion does not eliminate the responsibility to repent and believe... And just as God's sovereignty and sanctification does not rule out the need for sustained effort in pursuing holiness, so also God's preservation is not at odds with the necessity of the believer's perseverance. Did you get that? They're not at odds. God does it, and we do it. Both. God perseveres. Preserves us from start to finish while we persevere by faith that produces obedience. Many people who use the line, you've heard it before, once saved, always saved. We've all heard it, right? Talked about it a little bit last week. They use that phrase, once saved, always saved, to excuse a sinful lifestyle, however. And that is not what it's intended. This is not biblical, brothers and sisters. If we are not killing sin and looking more like Jesus, then God hasn't really saved us. If you look like the world, don't claim that God's power has saved you. Do you hear me? That's so important, isn't it? So a natural question arises, in all of us probably, As we think on this. Am I saved? Have you thought that? Am I saved? Are we saved? You say, I'm not always morally excellent, right? I'm regularly finding myself not seeking to know God more. I'm continuously falling into laziness. And not pursuing God. And not being self-controlled. I'm not always enduring. Sometimes I'm complaining. Sound like the children of Israel. I'm not displaying brotherly kindness very often. I'm pretty selfish still. As you're starting to be convicted by this, some of you might in the room be saying, Well, then am I saved? Am I saved? Well, I've heard some people say, well, don't ever ask that question. (laughs) Don't ever ask that question. I've heard it from pulpits where a pastor would say, if you ask that question, you're sinning. Beloved, that's not what the Bible says. A matter of fact, Peter tells them to do it. He exhorts them to do it in our passage today. In verses 10 and 11, he tells them to evaluate. He beats us to the punch and says, ask yourself, am I really God's chosen one? Am I really elect? Have I really been called? He exhorted the believers in 10 and 11 to evaluate their hearts. Are you God's elect? Has God's irresistible grace worked in you? Has God's effectual call called you to repentance and faith in Christ? Are you right with God through faith in Jesus? I know, I know. You're at this point thinking, okay, give me a break. I need a break. Are you going to talk about this the whole sermon? Yes, I am. Faith in Christ alone saves. But faith always comes with the traits listed in verses 5 to 7. Look at what Peter exhorts the believers in verses 10 and 11. Look at it. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This little passage breaks down into three key mandates concerning our salvation in Christ. I want you to get them. Here they are. You ready? One, we must be diligent to confirm, confirm our salvation. We must be diligent to confirm our salvation. Second, We must pursue these traits to avoid apostasy. We must be diligent to pursue these traits to avoid apostasy. And third, we must participate in grace to enter into the eternal glory of Jesus. We must participate in grace. Let's look at these and walk down through it. First, we must be diligent to confirm our salvation. We must be diligent to confirm our salvation. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Now, at this point, you might think, oh, oh, this is going to be a hard one. Yes, it will, but it will be good. I promise there's fruit in this. Everybody should walk out of this room saying, Jesus is my hope. Notice that Peter starts with, therefore, in light of what he's talked about previously about those virtues and how they should be displayed. Therefore, brethren. Oh, what's that? He implies what? They're believers. Implies they're believers. He's talking to the brethren. Now, if he's only talking to the false teachers, he would have said, therefore, false teachers, you better check your hearts. But at this point, he's talking to the Christians the professing believers. And he calls them brethren. This title assumes a right relationship with God for the reader. Yet notice Peter does exhort them, be all the more diligent to make certain about God's calling and election. Make all the effort. Make it your highest priority. Make it your highest priority. Now again, Schreiner has another great quote. He says, God's grace should not lead to moral relaxation, but intense effort. Did you hear me? Ooh, write that down. That's one that we all need to think on. You ready? God's grace should not lead to moral relaxation, but intense effort. We use grace in a whole different way, though, don't we? We use grace as an excuse An excuse for our sin, but that's not what grace is supposed to do. Grace is supposed to what? Motivate us to intense effort. It should make us strive all the more for holiness. To honor God. Another commentator put it this way. This teaching may sit uncomfortably with some people's theology. But it is the other side of the coin that has... On one side, God makes us firm. And on the other side, that we make our own salvation firm. Very, very important. Just explained, explain, and I am quoting more people today. And there's a reason behind that. Because I want to make sure I get it exactly right. Uh, this is just a show. I, I study these things, but I don't think that I got it all figured out perfectly. I want to make sure I don't get you off by even an inch. Because this is so important. You're not saved by what you do, but you're saved to do. Very important. Kistemaker explains, Peter wants the reader to realize that God calls them in their lifetime. Now. But they must exert themselves diligently in ascertaining and appropriating their calling and election. Peter stresses man's responsibility in regard to salvation. That's what he's stressing, just like James does, right? Now, I want you to listen closely. Peter's already talked about this diligence thing, hasn't he? Where did he talk about it? Look back at 3 again. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And now, look at verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all what? Diligence. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Okay, here we go. We live in a lazy society. (laughs) And the culture around you tells you, don't work real hard at anything. You'll be given it free. Everything will be fine. It'll come. Just sit back, relax, and it'll come to you. The Bible says the total opposite. The Bible says, be very, very diligent to pursue holiness. Very diligent. And be very, very, very disciplined and diligent to check to see if you're really even saved. That's what it says. Pretty profound, huh? Why would he stress this so much? Well, because, beloved, listen to me. Your salvation matters. (laughs) Do you understand that a person that does not repent and believe, guess where they're going to end up? They will end up eternally separated from God forever in a place called hell. It is an ugly place where you will pay for every sin you've ever committed for the rest of your life. For eternity. That's horrific, isn't it? Salvation matters. It matters more than anything else you do. You must be saved or you're going to face a just God one day. It's that important. Am I trying to scare you? No. I love you. It's just like those fires in California. If you know somebody's going to... Man, did y'all see the story of the lady and man that got in the pool and avoided the fire? Oh my, unbelievable. Uh, Their whole neighborhood burnt down. They got out late and they couldn't get out. They got in the car and it was so bad that they ran to their neighbor's pool, jumped in the pool and stayed there for something like 10 hours as it burnt around them and they survived. I don't know about you. Hey, there's a bigger fire coming. There's a much bigger thing coming. And I am concerned for all of you and my own soul. I think we need to take this serious. What do you think? And all those people we pass in the road and our neighbors... That are dying and going to hell. This is important. <laughs> we must be diligent to confirm our salvation in Christ. For our lives don't match it. Go to Christ today. Now. Right now. You don't have to look at me. Start talking to God. Now. That's how important it is. You say, well, you're a lunatic, Mike. No, I really believe this is true. So first, we must be diligent to confirm our salvation. Just like we must be diligent to supply the character traits mentioned in 5 to 7. Next, we see we must prove these traits to avoid apostasy. We must pursue, rather, these traits to avoid apostasy. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. We believers must take possession of our election by exercising our faith with these virtues. We must exercise our faith through these virtues. If we are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit... If we are working out our salvation in fear and trembling, if we are demonstrating moral excellence, self-control, pursuing knowing God, revealing godliness, showing brotherly kindness and love to one another, then we will not stumble. That's the promise. That's the promise. Stumble here, by the way, means more than just slip up into sin. Peter probably means to fall into apostasy, which is the ones that he's going to directly confront in chapter 2 that do fall into apostasy. The stumble is, the word literally can be translated and means experience disaster, be ruined, or be lost. So in other words, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to pursue these traits to avoid falling away from God completely. We must pursue it with all of our hearts and minds and souls and thoughts. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Right? We know true believers are saved and never lost again. But in a profound way, we participate. We participate in God's work to save us. Now listen closely. I know that's. I'm I'm, I'm slicing the line here. You better listen to it closely. We participate in our salvation. We do. As one person stated, quote, believers who confirm their call and election by living in a godly manner will not stumble. That is, they will not forsake God, abandon Him, and commit apostasy. Here's this. This is a perfect, very important. Listen to this quote. Virtue will keep one from the disaster of stumbling and never arriving at the eschatological home. Virtue will keep us from what? Virtue will keep us from the disaster of falling away from God as we pursue holiness. Okay, listen closely so you don't misunderstand. We participate in avoiding falling away. We do it by pursuing holiness by faith in Jesus. Our problem is, we are afraid to say we do anything because somehow we think we're taking credit away from God. This is a common misconception in our, in our society right now, in evangelical culture, uh, culture. If I say it's me doing something, then we are saying what? It's me. But the, and then it's not Grace. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Grace empowers us to do it. So we do it. We obey God. When Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was saying what? He will serve the Lord. He wasn't saying, Hey, I'm going to sit down and wait for God to give me some grace so I can serve the Lord. He assumed the grace was there and he was what? Serving the Lord. He's committed. He's going after it. You know, you you guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? Don't you know this when you're reading through your Bibles and you see all those passages where somebody says, I will do this. And you you think, uh, have you had songs like that? I will praise you forever. You, you had those All the days of my life, I will praise you. Anybody? Anybody? What are the, what's that song, Stephen? It just came to my mind all the days of my life. How's it good? Yeah, probably. Okay, so. Huh? I will sing the song of gladness. Okay, so we got all these songs that we say, I'm going to do something. Right? They're what? They're commitments. Do you find yourself occasionally say, but I really don't. But I think wish I would all the days of my life I wish I would what are you doing you're basically doubting the power of God that's at work in you and you say no I haven't been given everything for life and godliness through a knowledge of him I'm actually what doubting not trusting God to work in me look at this psalmist you see it over and over the psalmist says it this way In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. That's a commitment, isn't it? He says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He's firm, isn't he? How many of you would testify? You would say, yeah, that's my heart. Now, as for me, I said, my prosperity, I will never be moved. I will never be moved. Psalm 39:1, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. Oh, we all need to apply that one, don't we? This is our commitment. That's his commitment. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Was he just one self-centered guy that thought, Man, he sure does think high of his commitment level. No. He was really saved and he really committed. And the grace of God was working in him to say these things. Does this make sense? So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Wow, that's a profound one, isn't it? I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. How can he say that? How can he say that? Answer? Because he knows God is at work in his soul. He knows and is committed to the Lord. He loves the Lord with all his heart, mind, and soul. Why? Because God has saved him. He's a saved man already. His direction of his life is to obey this. This is his direction. So we have seen. We must be diligent to confirm our salvation. And we must pursue these traits to avoid apostasy. Finally, we see we must participate in grace to enter the eternal glory of Jesus. Verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into eternal kingdom, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, at this point, If you preach this wrong, you will miss this. It is very tricky. You got to watch closely. Who supplies eternal life? Who supplies that? Going into the eternal kingdom. Who supplies it? God does. God will supply that, doesn't it? Right? You see it? For in this way, the entrance into the eternal, in, in what way? In what way is it supplied? It's supplied in a way. In what way is it supplied? Supplied in doing the virtues that he had mentioned earlier. What? Wait. That sounds like work salvation, doesn't it? If I do these virtues, God will supply what? The eternal kingdom? That's that's the way. That's the point. Is he talking about work salvation? No. He's talking about the grace of God that you've been given everything you need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Christ. Through faith in him. You've been given what you need to what? Do the virtues. And then he supplies the eternal life. It works like a glove and hand and glove. It, It fits perfect. So none of us are going to get to heaven and go, I did it by myself. That would be sinful. We all say, by the grace of God, I did what I'm supposed to do. The things that you ordained for me to do. Oh, beloved. These are so important. They are so it, I can, can't you see how the Roman Catholics miss the whole boat? They get right up to the edge. They can see it. It's right there. And then they give themselves credit for what they do. Instead of saying it's been granted me everything I need for life and godliness, it is I earned life and godliness by being a good person. Look at me, I'm walking in the grace that God now gives me because I earned it. Which is backwards. The opposite. Clearly, Peter states in this verse that believers cannot enter, enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus without living a godly life. That's clearly what he states. And Galatians 5, 6 states this. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor Uncircumcision means anything. So in other words, he says what? Religious works don't do it. Right? But faith working through love. Hmm. When we believe in Christ, we are declared right with him, and therefore we then what? Work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We love. Those works... In and of themselves are not by ourselves. They're by God's gift, His grace working in us. And it's powerfully working. I can see in this room there's probably some that are confused. What? Sure. It's not what you do that saves you, it's what God does through you that accomplishes His sanctification. Okay, everybody knows these verses, right? Y'all fill in the blanks as we go along. For by? Yeah. You have been? Through? And that not of yourself, it is a? Of God. Not as a result of? So that no one may? Okay, you get it, right? Okay, but that's where we always stop. We love verse eight and nine, don't we? How many of you have that one memorized? Yeah, I got those right. But then verse ten—it's almost like it should be this big slap across the head. For we are His workmanship; we are His work of art; we are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus for. Good works, which God, you don't get credit still, prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them for the purpose of us living in those good works. Moral excellence, godliness. Self-control, brotherly kindness, love. Those are the things that God's prepared for us. Beloved, our, our faith in Jesus moves us to good works. The grace of God has included good work for us to walk in. We are God's work of art. But I think often we think of it more like we're just like a, a, a dot to dot. That God just put a couple of dots out there and you kind of figure out his work of art a little bit. No, he's filling in all the details in you, he's working through you to make you a masterpiece. He's making you look more and more and more like Jesus. We're not a forgery. That's the false teachers. They're a forgery. They do it by their own self and for their own self-exaltation. But we're not like that. So our final application. What is the problem? If we aren't practicing these virtues. What is the problem? Is it because we haven't been trained well enough? Is it because of our past? I hear this regularly. Well, you know, this is just who I am. I've done this all my life. This is the way I am. The influence in my life. Hey, I was raised in this area. So obviously I'm going to act like that y'all anybody else use those kind of excuses? Is it because we were born with a deficiency in our personality? I hear this one regularly too. Well, my personality it doesn't it's not really kind. <laughs> You know, I'm one of those guys that don't like to talk to people. So I'm way back here. You know, I just don't have that personality. So brotherly kindness doesn't fit for you? Well, I'm just this outgoing type A, quote unquote, personality. So sometimes I say things that are offensive. Are we not saying those things? You know what that is? An excuse for sin. Do you understand? That's what we're doing. Beloved, we've been given all we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of Christ. It doesn't matter what personality trait you have. Walk in Christ, don't listen to the hogwash of the world that's giving you an excuse for your sin. We're too psychologized. We're way too psychologized. Now nobody's going to ever use the personality traits with me again. And that will be a good thing. What's the problem? Is it because of your past? Is it because of your parents? Is it because your culture? Is it because someone in the world made you this way? What's the excuse? Answer. You ready? There's no faith. There's no faith. What do you mean? Go back to verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Oh, beloved, listen to me. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And as we know him, and as we trust in him, we then show the virtues. If you're trusting in yourself, or you're trusting in the world's description of you, or you're trusting in how people talk to you, or what people have done to you, then you won't supply those things. (laughs) But if you're trusting in Christ and you have a true knowledge of Him and you are right with Him, you will walk and display these characteristics. If we're having a problem displaying these traits, it's because our knowledge of Him is way too small. Or the knowledge of Him has failed to penetrate our hearts. Or, sin has become more important to us than Him. How do we know if we're really God's own, beloved? How do we know? One, we listen to Him. That's not some mystical thing. That's, we read the Bible, and He speaks to us through the Word. We listen to Him. Second, we look like Him. That's how we know. When we look like Jesus, we know what? Where he is. Third, we lean upon him. Because we blow it a lot still, don't we? But we go to him. We lean on him to help us to accomplish what we're supposed to do for his glory. And finally, we long for him. We long to see him. We long for the day of glory. We long for the day when He will supply His eternal kingdom and we will enjoy Him forever and ever. Don't we? That's us, right?